What is up, everyone? This is Parai Nation once again. And today we're going to be discussing a topic that I am very passionate about. And as usual, every week we're bringing the heat, we're bringing good guests, educated guests, guests from all around the world. So we'll just start off with Tracy. Kindly tell us a bit more a bit of, about yourself, what you do, and what, you're, what makes you passionate about this topic specifically. Um, my name is Tracy. I'm from Kenya. I'm an interior designer. I currently live in Milan, Italy, but I became very into activism and um, community development because my mother was uh, works in NGOs and my grandparents uh, were Mau Mau freedom fighters in Kenya. So as soon as I started unlearning what I was taught in school and I said learning for myself and listening to their stories and a lot of the horrors they went through, I really learned like there's a lot of injustice and there's also a lot of things we don't know. So that's why I'm very passionate about this topic. Awesome. I'm glad that we have you on. Honestly, I'm really, really privileged to have you on. And perhaps we'll also talk a bit more about that Kenyan history. And we'll also address reparations as well. And how, for example, you know, I think certain Askaris that were fighting in World War One or World War Two were eventually given some sort of money. Uh, but that mm. was like a small group of them. I mean, we'll just discuss the nuances about uh, that whole process. But we also yeah. have Miles, who's on today. So kindly just introduce yourself, Miles. I know you've already been on the podcast, but just let the newer viewers uh, know who you are. Of course. Uh, hello, my name is Miles. Uh, I am an incoming uh, university student, going to be majoring in political science and minoring in the French language. Uh, I am from Algeria. Uh, so my family, I come from a long line of military veterans. Uh, my grandfather actually spent a decent two months, unfortunately, uh, in a French military prison during the war in Algeria. Uh, so my family has a lot of history and connection to the War of Independence. Uh, at the moment, I live in southern France, but I'm going to be studying in Germany, so I'll be leaving here in a few weeks. Uh, but yeah, I've always been very passionate about activism and talking about things related to the African continent and my homeland. I do actually run a TikTok account where I talk a lot about my culture and my country and some of my history. Uh, so this is always something that I've been very interested in. So I'm very excited to see where the conversation goes. Yeah, thank you so much, Miles. And actually, this is perfect, perfect timing. <laughs> uh, we also have once again, I think basically Jamil basically lives on this show. Uh, Jamil, for the viewers who don't know you, I'm guessing that's uh, quite a quite a small number, but please just introduce yourself for, for those new viewers and for the guests on here as well today. Good afternoon. Well, it's afternoon my time. I don't know what time every zone everybody else is in, but hello, good evening, good night, good morning, good evening, all that good stuff. Um, my name is Jamil. Um, I'm so sorry. There's a dog barking in the background. I'm puppy sitting. No worries. <laughs> um, but yes, my name is Jamil Ninsu, also known as Dogla Boy on TikTok. And as Adnan says, if you don't know me by now, I hate to sound boastful, but you know, it means you just haven't been listening to his podcast, really. And I'm just happy to be here. Awesome stuff, uh, Jamil, and I'm just looking at the diversity that we have on this panel today, and honestly, guys, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge thing. I mean, I've done a series, and I think this, I can even call this like an extension of that series, uh, called Connecting the Colonial Experience, and I guess we all come from, you know, we're all cut from different cloths, if I may say, 
And, you know, we have someone from Algeria, one person from Jamaica who had a different history that was more or less, you know, slavery followed by colonialism. And you obviously have people like Eric Williams from Trinidad as well, you know, just speaking about it in the Caribbean, et cetera. So, I mean, we can all just have like a conversation about these things, but even just, um, let's, since we're talking about reparations today, I just want to hear your reactions. I mean, like what, what's the first thing that you guys hear when you first say that word to someone else? Does, do you get looks of disgust or like, you know, oh, you must be joking. Uh, do you get looks of, you know, people who are actually interested to listen, like, you know, to your trauma and like why perhaps you're deserving of this? Um, just kind of take us through it, uh, through that. Anyone else can like, you know, just start us off, you know? So I'll, I'll jump in. Um, so yeah, I'm Jamaican, but right now I live in the United States. And so when I, when I talk about reparations, there's a double-sided argument. There's a, the conversation takes on two sides, right? Because you look at me, you see a black man, you hear me talking about reparations. So you're thinking I'm an African-American that's taught, I mean, if the accent doesn't give it away, you're thinking that I'm an African-American who's talking about reparations with regards to the United States. When I'm really talking about reparations with regards to the United Kingdom, and I'm one of those Jamaicans that would even push it to reparations against Portugal and Spain because there were Portuguese and Spaniards who were enslaving people on the island of Jamaica way before the British even took notice of it. Um, but so I do get these looks of, it happened so long, uh, these looks of like, why are you talking about it? Um, you have some people who don't understand that there was slavery in the Caribbean. So they'll say, why are you talking about our reparations? No, 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 no. I'm talking about my reparations. My reparations and your reparations are two different types of reparations. Um, but then you also have people who are saying why um, it happened so long ago. Nobody that you know was a slave. Nobody alive today was a slave. And you know, Adnan knows, right? I, I am a, a genealogist, right? So like, I'm actually able to pinpoint the couple that I descend from that was enslaved. And as of yesterday, I can tell you that they were, you know, so in the British Caribbean, slavery was abolished 1833. Um, but for four years after that, well, the papers were signed 1833. Um, they finally went into effect 1834. But from 1834 to 1838, you had apprenticeship, which was basically, you're still working for the same person that formerly enslaved you. They might pay you a little bit, but it's not enough to live on. So you still have to stay on the property, right? So I can proudly say, that when my ancestors started having their children, it was 1839. So they were free, free. And when they got married, they were free, free. So, you know, when people say those things, right, when you know your family history, right, or you just have a basic understanding of your country, right, a lot of Jamaicans will say that, yeah, you know, we got our freedom in 1833, 1834, you know, but a lot of us who know will say, no, we got it much, much later because of apprenticeship. So there's a lot of that comes out of that conversation and that word, you have people who will get territorial, you have people who get defensive, um, but you know, a right is a right and a wrong is a wrong. Yeah, Jamil, actually, I want to touch on something specific because I believe we had a similar conversation and then we'll move on to everyone else. Um, I believe you also said that you did some research on a specific surname and that person actually descended from a person who either owned a slave plantation or a plantation of indentured laborers. And if, if I can remember correctly, you did mention that they also do own a large amount of wealth. So it's almost as if you can draw a straight line from that plantation ownership. And by the way, guys, let me just also mention, um, it's not cheap to even buy the land for a plantation back then. It was not cheap. The people who are doing this were extremely rich. Um, if you look at J Joseph Inikori's book, 
Africans and the Industrial Revolution. Um, in one of the chapters, he actually addresses this and he talks that he mentions that a medium sized plantation in Jamaica would cost you around 30,000 pounds, right? And that's like what, maybe 4 million shillings for those who are converting to that currency. That's a lot of money, right? Uh, so if you want to look into that, just go ahead and look into it. But you can definitely draw a line between the, you know, that person and the wealth. Could you just tell us a bit more about that, Jamil? Yeah, so my Indian ancestors, actually, one second while I deal with this. Yeah, sure, that's okay. It's okay, Jamil. Yeah, go ahead, okay. go ahead. So yes, my, so I'm Indo-Jamaican, Afro-Jamaican, right? So my Indian ancestors were indentured on a plantation by the name of Hopewell Penn. Um, they were indentured to a man by the name of, okay, so the full title is the Honorable Sir Dr. John Pringle the First. Um, Dr. John Pringle was a doctor in Scotland. Um, when he was a young man, he was working as like a assistant for a, a, like a, a, a lord who liked to like hunt and fish. So he was like the gaming assistant. And the man told him, you know, perhaps you should go to one of the colonies and strike out and see what you can do. So he goes to Jamaica where he marries Miss Amy Levy. Miss Amy Levy is the daughter of the Custos of, I want to say St. Catherine. So he's basically, for those of you in America, think governor, right? So he basically marries a governor's daughter. Um, and you know, he's a doctor from Scotland, but obviously he's just come to Jamaica. So he marries into this rich land-owning family. Um, and shortly after his marriage and moving to Jamaica, he's able to acquire this wealth. Um, so hope at one point. Um, Dr. John Pringle owned the most land in St. Mary, the parish that I'm from, um, as well as he became knighted by, I, I want to say, I don't remember who was the queen or king at that time, but he was knighted and became a sir due to the fact that, you know, his banana plantations were so successful, um, as well as Marcus Garvey. So I have this very interesting dynamic with there because Marcus Garvey actually writes that John Pringle funded some of his excursions, right? Or some of his movements. So there's like mixed feelings there because here's this white man who's oppressing my family, but at the same time, his money is going to help people that look like me. So that's, that's that history right there. Yeah, and I think even, I think obviously the conversations on reparations, we can have it in a very general sense. But even if you wanna talk about slavery, <clears throat> I think we'll refer to slavery back uh, back to slavery in a moment. Uh, but I want to just get uh, get a bit of, uh, you know, opinions from you guys, Tracy and Miles. Um, let's start off with Miles. I mean, like, do you know anyone or like, you know, any French people or do French descendants usually have, is it is the privilege visible for many of those people that live in Algeria and they're like French, for example? Or can you see like a bit of stratification or is there any like, you know, still evidence that, for example, you know, Algeria was looted to such a grave extent that it affects your life today. Yeah, uh, so first off, if we're going to talk about um, the history of the French settlers in Algeria, uh, at one point at the height of Algerian history of, as uh, Algerie Francais, uh, there were actually up to 1.3 million European settlers living in Algeria. Predominantly French, but also there were Italians, there were Spaniards, uh, there were the Portuguese, the Maltese, and etc. So it weren't only French people who were living in Algeria. 
Uh, so the dynamics of, we call them the Piet Noirs, was actually quite various. There were those who were very wealthy, who were connected directly to mainland France's government. And there were also those who were just average kind of daily workers. Uh, my grandfather actually uh, often worked alongside a lot of these people in the business that he was involved in. So there were, of course, Piet Noirs who were average, hardworking citizens who worked in the factories, uh, who owned businesses and things like that. And there were also those who were very rich. Um, so it was a very kind of complicated situation, uh, but there was always a very heavy kind of racial and ethnic divide between the European settlers who were living in Algeria and the actual Algerians. There was very rarely any sort of intermixing between the two. Um, the Piet Noirs did not have to learn Arabic or Tamazight, uh, but the Algerians, if they wanted to go to school or to get jobs, we had to learn French. Uh, so it wasn't exactly an even power dynamic. It was a very uneven power dynamic, actually. And uh, even during World War II, uh, thousands and thousands of Algerians, like my grandfather, were drafted in the army during World War II, uh, but they weren't actually allowed to serve in the same regimes as French people were. In fact, uh, during the liberation of Paris uh, during World War II in 1945 from uh, Nazi Germany, uh, Charles de Gaulle, then the president, said that the black and the African regiments would only be able to enter the city during the parade after the French regiments had actually entered the city. Uh, so there was an utter pervasiveness of racism uh, in Algerian society. Now, just to fast forward a little bit, once we get to Algeria's actual independence in 1962, Part of the peace deal, or what we call the Evian Accords that um, France and Algeria, the new leaders of Algeria had signed, is that France was going to leave, uh, but there were hidden clauses in those agreements. The first one is that France would have control over Algeria's naval ports and air bases for the next 15 years. The second clause to that statement was that Algeria would have to give citizenship to every single European settler who was living in Algeria. So it was independence, but it wasn't actually fair independence, like with most African countries, there were always hidden clauses. Uh, but it didn't actually work out that way. And the reason why it didn't work out that way in the end is because there was a lot of uh, negative sentiment against European settlers in Algeria. Many Algerians viewed them as collaborators to the colonial forces. Uh, they viewed them as people who weren't really Algerian, because again, they had never really intermixed Maybe it would have been a little bit different if the Piet Noirs and the Algerians had actually been intermixing for decades, but there really was no intermixing. They lived in their own separate communities. They didn't work in the same places. Oftentimes they didn't speak the same languages. Uh, so there was a lot of kind of negative feeling, you know, how can these people stay here if they're not like us? They don't speak Arabic, they don't speak Tamazite. They certainly don't respect Islam, which was a religion that the majority of Algerians practiced. So there were huge cultural divides. So within a span of about two years after the French left, more about 90% of them ended up leaving the country on their own. Those, there were a few who tried to stay. There were hundreds of thousands who did say, maybe we can stay, maybe things will get better. Uh, but that's when things like massacres started breaking out. Uh, Piet Noirs were getting massacred in their thousands. Uh, and the Algerian government was doing absolutely nothing about it. And ironically, the French government did nothing about it because the French basically said, we're done here. We want nothing more to do with you guys. We told you guys that we were leaving and you chose to say you're not our problem anymore, which is why many Europeans who are living in France today, whose parents were born in Algeria, whose grandparents were born in Algeria, uh, not only do they hate Algeria for what happened, but they also hate the French government because they feel that France did absolutely nothing to help them. Uh, so when I, you know, I have, uh, I know many people who are Piedmois, whose grandparents and parents were born in Algeria, and many of them kind of have this sort of alienation.
uh, they don't trust Algeria because of what happened. And they also feel like the French government did absolutely nothing for them. The French government said, we're done here. We want nothing to do with you. We're not going to help you. You stay there, you figure it out yourself. Uh, so in the eyes of us as Algerians, it's very simple. These people were people who had taken over our land. They really weren't entitled to stay or to live in Algeria in the first place. In the eyes of the Piednois, this was their homeland. Many of them were born in Algeria. They had never uh, lived in mainland France before. And so when France said, we're done here, we're out of here, goodbye. Well, what happens to us? What are we supposed to do? We weren't born in France. We know nothing about mainland France. All we know is Algeria. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic that maybe we can talk about a little bit more later on. Uh, but the Pia Noir story is one that is incredibly complicated. And um, the views of many Algerians in relations to the Pia Noirs is also incredibly complicated. So the Algerian War of Independence is very multi-layered. It's not simply one of fighting against colonialism. It's one about European settlers. It's one about property disputes. It's one about human rights violations in military camps during the war. It's one about prisoners of war. It's one about religion and ethnicity. Uh, so I often like to say that it's far more complicated than just a simple war. It's 132 years of massive complications that many Westerners and even many Algerians today uh, still really don't comprehend 100%. Yeah, and if I just want to quickly link it to the British system in Uganda, um, a lot of people have heard me mention this article before, and I will keep mentioning it because I feel like it's very pertinent to the conversations we should be having about reparations as a whole. Uh, you know, Tarsus Kabwegeri wrote an article called The Induction, uh, sorry, The Induction System, The Dynamics of Colonial Violence, uh, and he was mainly looking at British involvement in Uganda. And, you know, you should know very well, for example, that the Buganda tribe, the chiefs specifically, were able to benefit from essentially fighting uh, other tribes like the Bunyorokitara tribe, etc., because they were already involved in uh, some sort of ethnic violence before that there was a war between those two kingdoms and the British came to them and said hey actually we think that you're superior to these guys because you have a specific system in the way that you have hierarchy and we're going to support you in this war and give you certain you know gifts for example land some people were even given like over 300 acres etc and the chiefs are also given land and goods and everything and they looted a lot of these different places as well so I think when we're talking about you know all these different versions of reparations i mean you have to really have a conversation about like first of all who's eligible for that and to what extent can we just make it a black and white thing of okay this person did wrong because history is very much if you know one thing about studying history there's rarely any good person in history that can like literally wipe their hands clean and say that i'm fully clean very few people can do that so even if i want to just go to perhaps uh, perhaps and jerry could you tell us a bit about your experience uh, with your grandparents and you know you said that they fought they fought in the Mamao. did they receive any payment by the way and what was the reaction to colonialism and also you by the way you're also a testament to the fact that colonialism actually wasn't that long ago that's two generations right there yeah right? yeah it's my grandfather's oldest brother so and his wife and they're 97 and 98 right now so it really did come as a surprise because the the reparations that it happened in 2013 if um but it was after like 10 years of negotiation 
And each time they negotiated the price or of the reparations kept getting smaller and smaller. They kept adding more and more clauses. So at the end of it, it, it was a lawsuit that was filed by the Mau Mau survivors. And they only paid reparations to the victims of the ones who were tortured. And you had to attend the trials and you had to see how they tortured you. And the only, literally it wasn't, even the other mom, the families weren't eligible. It was only if you were a member of the Mau Mau and you were tortured and you were still alive, were you eligible to any reparations from the British? Even if you were tortured and you died, the British were like, your family was not getting anything. So they only actually paid a little over five to 6,000 Mau Mau fighters only. And these were literally in the hundreds of thousands of people who fought for independence. But only 5,000 to 6,000 were paid. And the settlement was, if I'm, I'm just gonna check so I'm right, I think the settlement was, yeah, it was 30 million, it was 19.9 million pounds, so 30 million US dollars, so that's not a lot. So each and every person, I would remember my grandfather received around 300,000 Kenya shillings. So each person only received that about that much. And I feel it's still very much present in them. And I feel like that there's a duality. And what Miles was talking about, like the hidden clauses that, um, that the colonial powers uh, put into the deal for us to get our independence. Kenya has a lot. The fact that the, the Brits still have access to train their soldiers, on Kenyan land, and yeah. it's a, and it's an act that was renewed for another hundred years last year in Parliament, and I was my we were just so angry because it doesn't make any sense, and I feel like the first thing that actually like made me realize a lot of what the British were doing was wrong, and I was very young because I think it was like two thousand and one. I must have been, gosh, I must have been like six, and it was when the Trukana women who are in the in the desert area where the British soldiers um, train. And a lot of them came out with the stories of them being raped. And the fact that we have so many mixed Trukana, Maasai, Borana children in the middle of the arid desert. So there's no reason why those kids would have any Caucasian in them. But the British government came to investigate and found that there was no wrongdoing and found that the women were lying. And I remember watching when I was a child, these women with their children walking down the streets because Kenya back then used to be very pro-protest. I don't know what happened. We were very pro-protest. We used to take to the streets and we really used to take colonial people up to task. But that's one case to this day. And the, the way the British and the Kenyan government didn't protect us and the British government just covered it up, same thing happened. Was it not early this year when the British soldier who end up, ended up burning up like a large part of the forest and ended up burning um, like five elephants and whatever. And he just posted it on Snapchat and he was like, yeah, deuces, we're out. I was, the fact that they still have this much power and the, the the queen still owns most of our wildlife sanctuaries, which is why, you know, 
William proposed to Kate in Kenya and it was so romantic. Cue my sarcasm. And um, the fact that we still, they still own certain parts of Magadi salt. So we buy salt that we mine ourselves back from the British. Yeah, so yeah. it's very multi-layered. And when we talk about, these are things that as, as Miles was saying, there are things that other Kenyans also might not know, might not be knowledgeable about. And it boils down to one, education. Two, the eradication. The British was, were very good at eradicating any evidence, especially of the concentration camp that we had, that literally we, they killed three million people. We had a proper... Mm, and it was, and it, was uh, it was all by... Prince, what was his name? Prince Charles? No, not Prince Charles, his father, the one who just died. Wasn't that him? No, Charles is his son. Prince Philip. Oh, Prince yeah, Philip, yeah, yes. Yeah, He's yeah, the yeah. one who set up the concentration camps in Kenya that killed three million people who are Meru, Kamba, Kikuyu, all of them. And he was very much, you know, that was the time when Queen Elizabeth became queen when she was in Kenya. And they had, they were, the uprising was becoming so big. I even found an article of the Lords discussing in 1944 how it's become such a big thing and how we need, they need to become, have a more, a stronger presence and a way to curtail the people for asking for their independence. But because of what they did, they found a way to destroy all the papers. They burnt the place to the ground. And there's only very few articles or very few people who know about that. And the fact that it's something that I was talking to my grandparents about, and they're like, yeah, their friends were actually in those camps. They never saw them again. Brought it down to me that these are people who they knew who were massacred. Like, and colonialism has this funny way of, they know all of the bad. They remember the Italians coming before the British. They remember the Portuguese. And then they also, every Sunday, they will be the first people sitting in the pews at church. And I'm just like, this is how we were so properly colonized that he fought against them. He saw the horrors. But every Sunday, he will still go to church and pray to the God that the British told him. No, I find it, I mean, I find it really interesting, especially when, you know, you brought up the fact that there's certain parts that are still owned by them. We still yeah. have to buy certain parts of like the salt, etc. No, a lot of Kenya is still owned by the crown and by the British. And also remember that there are a lot of settlers. Um, even last, I feel like it was last week, mm -hmm. a British settler who... Um, was an environmentalist was oh, murdered in her was home. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. she was a settler. She was from a settler family. And as you were saying, like if you look at the families that remained, a lot of the ones who own like Delamere and whatever, mm. they still own so much wealth in Kenya, which is what a lot of people and a lot of people in Rift Valley have been trying to petition for the British government to give them back the land that they took, which is now in turn owned by the settlers. Yeah. And in fact, I'll actually add on to that, guys. What I will mention is that if you're a Commonwealth person, you should note this. Jamil, do you have any aspirations of perhaps becoming the, the British Prime Minister anytime soon? Oh, we can? Yeah, you can, by the way. I can also vote in the UK, by the way, because you're from British the Commonwealth. British Prime Minister? Yes. 
You can also be a soldier, Jamil, by the way, if you want to go and, you know, serve in Afghanistan. I know they're pulling out now. But if you want to, you can actually serve. And, like, I'm telling people to go and search this up. The last time I checked, I was literally able to, like, if I wanted to, I could have registered to vote. But honestly, no. It just felt so wrong to my conscience. Never. Even the Commonwealth Games, I've never really settled down with the concept of the Commonwealth Games. I mean, what are we coming together to play or to celebrate about? The fact that we all got colonized by the same person, basically, of the same kingdom. <laughs> Honestly, really I feel like Ghana was one of the few countries that knew, like they got out quick. Mm. And I, unfortunately, Kenya is still very much under the shackles of trying to do everything that the British want so we can continue remaining East Africa's darling, that we will never get to that point of liberation. It's very sad, but I feel like that's unfortunately true. Yeah. So I think what, okay, we basically discussed, like, you know, obviously the effects, but I want us to also just now continue making the case for reparations to actually show people that, you know, because people say that, oh yeah, you know, it was too long ago. Let us actually address that from from the roots of it. So I've done, uh, uh, in my, uh, you know, last semester of school, I did actually study specifically Caribbean, and I think it was also American, the, the slave trade, essentially, the Americas. And I also had the privilege of understanding that relationship with the Industrial Revolution. So keep that in mind, by the way. Right. And I want to just mention a, a bit of a fact here. Joseph Inikori wrote an article in 2020, I believe it was, about the relationship between transatlantic slavery and the Industrial Revolution. And in other words, global capitalism. And what, he, what like, I, want, I want people to like really note this. And when I tell you like the slave trade could not have existed without the labor force of Africans coming from Africa, we genuinely mean that because what actually happened was that they tried to enslave Native Americans and Brazilians, it failed, right? Same thing for other places. So what they actually said is that, hey, listen, guys, um, we're not going to either have enough, um, you know, labor in terms of if we enslave Native Americans, which they did for a bit, but also generally speaking was very difficult because they knew the terrains, they couldn't declare war on them. So also just if you want to go into like specific statistics, Inikori actually highlights that between 1761 and 1780, the labor of enslaved Africans produced up to 82.5% of the average annual value of export commodities from the Americas. That is 19 years, just 19 years, right? And these resources are going to Europe, right? And if you want to like look at the arguments even more closely, if anything, a lot of these, the enslavement actually helped to indirectly in building up the force for the industrial revolution. For example, the idea that, of, like, you know, these financial systems that you have, because people ask, where did the money for the industrial revolution come from? By the way, the, the money that was used to actually fund the steam engine, that came from a plantation. All of it, by the way, you can look in Eric Williams' book, Slavery and Capitalism. So they basically got money from a plantation and they funded the steam engine using that money. In addition to that, these journeys were very long. So you needed loans. Before that, people didn't even have banks, by the way. They didn't have like big banks. People used to store money in their homes. But then what happens after slavery? Well, banks like Lloyd's Bank, actually Lloyd's Bank started off as a coffee house, by the way, in London where they used to take runaway slaves. And I have posters. If you want to go to the UCL website, I believe it is. They have posters from Lloyd's house describing the slave 
the enslaved person and how they looked and they said bring them to Lloyd's house so you can get a reward so guys if if you really want to talk about these big companies that you're seeing today oh HBSBC a lot of them actually have roots in slavery so it's not like this wealth just came out of nowhere also if you want to make the case for certain african countries for example you've literally milked africa as your war cow i'm just going to call it a war cow right because for algeria france was using it as a nuclear playground if you want to i mean miles i'm going to come to you after this actually and ask you about the effects of that some people have managed to get you know reparations etc but till today other people there's literally radioactive pieces of metal sitting in the desert of algeria and there's even one well that is still poisoned radioactively here's another bombshell right if you want to talk about it there's a mine called the shinokolobwe mine in the drc and from that mine came two thirds of the uranium that was used in the us bombs that were dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki so we literally these resources you can see a correlation between that and winning the war as well don't forget that 1 million african soldiers right sorry yeah 1 million african uh, people were forced to serve most of them were forced to serve right in world war 1 and world war 2 many of them haven't gotten paid 100,000 west africans from uh, specifically you know ghana nigeria these countries they served in myanmar fighting against the japanese right most of them were promised either a bicycle or freedom did they get any of that no right so i'm i'm sorry when people tell me that you know oh it was so long ago it was so long ago you can't use people as your pawns in your international game of world politics and expect not to be held accountable of course these are long lasting effects more than 100 years i'm telling you we'll feel these effects of colonialism unless there's some effort made to change that for the next 100 200 years because even the neo colonialism that followed that's a different conversation for another day but let's go on to miles actually and uh, let's talk about the nuclear weapons in algeria and other forms of you know evidence that actually show that colonialism still affects people in the modern day of course So actually um where um in the between the 1960s to the 1970s it was kind of a global race uh for the countries that hadn't already acquired nuclear weapons to do so. Uh so you had France in the 60s, you had India in the 1970s, even though the United States threatened India that if it did develop nuclear weapons it would sanction India. And then you had Pakistan who came after India and then China also tried to get nuclear weapons and did. Uh so that period of those 2 to 3 decades was a real global rush uh, for the major countries to get access to nuclear weapons. Uh so France actually used the southern region actually, uh specifically around the city of Adrar. which is only about 3 hours away from my homeland by the way from my hometown Tamudras. Uh so they actually use Adrar to test France's nuclear weapons. And two of these nuclear weapons that France tested in these areas were also some of the most powerful nuclear weapons uh in France's nuclear arsenal. So you can imagine the kind of damage and atrocities and etc that kind of came after that. Now when France actually another part of the clause after France gave Algeria its independence is again that France would be able to have access to air bases and to naval ports in Algeria which is how France was able to test nuclear weapons in Algeria even after Algeria had already gained its legal independence and recognition as an independent state 
so France actually used these regions to test its nuclear weapons because again, sparsely populated region, not too densely populated. Uh, but despite the fact radioactive, you know, materials and et cetera was left in the region. And France basically said, okay, we're done here, goodbye. And there was actually a report that was released in the 1990s. Can't remember the exact name of the report, but I do believe it came directly from the French government, uh, where France did actually acknowledge that um, there were failures in its nuclear weapons test and that they did not do an appropriate job with actually cleaning up the effects of the nuclear uh, test. And France did give some levels of reparations, as we were mentioning earlier, uh, to some of the victims of these uh, nuclear tests, because again, when you leave these radioactive measures and et cetera exposed, it leads to, um, what's it called in English, uh, defects in children and deformities and et cetera, much like we saw as many Japanese children after the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, but to this day, the majority of the people who are actually affected by these nuclear weapons tests weren't actually compensated. In fact, you can still go to the specific area where they tested the nuclear weapons, and all there is that separating the radioactive areas from the actual urban areas is a literal fence. Fence and Algerian soldiers. So anyone could easily, you could literally walk in there and potentially get infected with radioactive material. So it, it's not even a secret anymore. It's just blatantly obvious uh, that France basically used Algeria as a nuclear test site. And then after they're done said, we're done here, we're not cleaning it up. This is your mess. This is your problem for you to handle. Like we are somehow responsible for France's nuclear test, which it chose to do on an independent sovereign country, by the way. So that was just another beyond, you know, another idiotic move or something stupid uh, on the long list of things that France ended up doing in Algeria. But if we want to talk outside of nuclear weapons, France used Algeria's oil much like, I probably shouldn't say this, but countries like the United States used oil from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the British Petroleum Company, BP, do you know how BP became a famous oil company? Off of taking oil from Iran, which is exactly how the nationalist Prime Minister Mossadegh came to power in the 1950s. I did an entire history presentation on this. But a lot of these major oil companies that we know today in France and England, became wealthy off of taking oil from Algeria, from Iran, from Iraq. They didn't get this oil from the United Kingdom or from the United States. And so there are many people in Algeria who still feel today uh, that the Algerian government is still actually working for the French government because they continue selling massive outputs of Algerian oil to France for dirt cheap prices. And just a few years ago, the European Union and Algeria signed a deal for Algeria to export even more gas and oil to the, to the EU for an even lower price than what Algeria was already receiving for the oil. And so there's just massive feelings in Algeria uh, that our government is full of what we call uh, Arkis in Arabic. And the Arkis are basically people, Muslim Algerians, who worked for France uh, during the Algerian War of Independence. So a lot of Muslim Algerians were actually forcibly enlisted in the French army during the War of Independence. And many also willingly served because they were misled with, you know, we'll pay you, we'll give you money, you know, if we have to leave, we'll bring you to France, we'll give you a nice house and all of that garbage, many of which never actually happened. In fact, once France gave Algeria its independence, they refused to allow the Harkis to come to France. Charles de Gaulle even said, we don't want to take these Muslims in because I don't want my town up. He's from a town called Colomb uh, les Eglises, which means the home of the church, because I don't want my home to become Colomb les Mosques. I don't want my house to become the home of the mosque and the home of the Muslims. 
Uh, so Charles de Gaulle, again, was an Islamophobe, an anti-Semite, a racist, a xenophobe, but that's an entirely another topic. Uh, but again, you know, the French government, all of these things, we are still seeing the effects of today. Why we're selling so much oil for incredibly dirt cheap prices to Europe while there is double digit unemployment in Algeria, uh, while teens actually can't get jobs once they graduate from university. Uh, why there's again, record high levels of uh, poverty why, again, there is a crumbling lack of health and infrastructure for actual Algerian civilians uh, is beyond insane. And it's also why we've seen, I don't know if any of you have heard of the Hirak movement before, uh, but in 2019, a little short story about this, uh, there was the massive beginnings of a pro-democracy revolution in Algeria, uh, which is what we call Hirak. It literally means the movement in English. So it really became popular in 2019, uh, and we ended up getting rid of our president, Bouteflika. Uh, so there were millions of people who were protesting not over the dictatorship, but also, again, over these economic concerns and etc. How can we have these strong relations with European countries and we're selling them oil and we're selling them all of these things, uh, but we can still manage to feed and give jobs to millions and millions of our own citizens. So France still works with Algeria today. It's not like Algeria was this revolutionary state that gained its independence and said France no more. It's a country that is still working with France today, that is still working for the economic benefits that comes from the EU, while subsequently not being able to provide for millions of their own citizens. So Algeria, in my opinion, is really no different from many of these other African countries that are still working for England, that are still working for France, um, that are, again, still working for countries like Spain, by the way, because there are territories in Africa that were colonized by Spain. If we're going to talk about the Canary Islands, if we're going to talk about Melilla, if we're going to talk about Ceuta. Uh, so a lot of these places are still directly in the debts of the European colonizers, and it won't actually end because the governments that we have continue to make deals with the very same people that they claim to be against in the first place. So those are the big problems, in my opinion, especially within Algeria today. Yeah, I just want to, I'll come to Jamil in a moment, and then we'll finish off with Tracy as well. But I just want also want to mention, it's not like Africans didn't do anything, or like the Global South didn't do anything. If you want to read into this, um, I mean, for lack of a better word, this is what it's actually called in the literature, and I really hate this term. But if you want to look into it a bit more, search up the Third World Project, and it's essentially about the Global South countries coming together and actually, Algeria was one that was leading, specifically the president, Boumediene. Um, they actually decided to nationalize. And the oil shock was partly caused due to OPEC, right? And OPEC is essentially a union of certain countries that came together. And they said, hey, we don't like the fact that we're selling our oil so cheap to you. You shouldn't be dictating our oil prices. This is our main commodity. You literally just came from colonizing us 10 years ago. We deserve independence in terms of our commodities. So you had some crazy, crazy individuals. Like I highly respect them for doing this specific thing. Like King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, by the way, as well. They raised the oil prices within a year as well. First of all, to just uh, uh, they, they did an embargo of Israel. Anyone who's working with Israel, uh, actually had the, the prices go up. That's why there was the oil issue as well. But they also started to just reduce the supply. And they said, you guys think that you can just dictate to us our fuel prices? So they just started raising the prices, obviously through divide and conquer. I mean, the only thing that came out of the, in quotes, third world project was the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. That's the only thing. But even that right now, unfortunately, is still heavily controlled by European and Western powers at large. 
But yeah, basically, uh, if you want to look into it, it's very interesting, that literature. Go ahead, Jamil. Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, it's slightly off topic from what Miles was saying, although I do agree with um, with what a lot of what Miles said was stuff that I, I hadn't heard before, but what I did hear before I do agree with. Um, but I, back to what you had originally said with regards to like expressing as to why the importance of like having this conversation about reparations needs to be held is because um, I come from a stance where I don't think, and this is me personally, I don't speak for every Jamaican, I don't speak for every person who is advocating for reparations, but my take on reparations is that maybe it shouldn't, it's not even maybe, right? I don't think it should be a check that is cut for everybody, right? Because when you talk about cutting a check, so I as a Jamaican, right? I am an Indo-Afro-Jamaican. Jamaica is a land of many people. You look at a place like, like the Caribbean is a diverse place, right? Guyana is also called the land of six races. Right. And so Ghana is also a place where Portuguese is considered a separate group of people from Europeans. Right. Because of the history of how they got there. Right. And so I bring this up because then if the argument is the money should be given to Jamaicans of African descent. Well, is it Jamaicans of 100 percent African descent? Is it Jamaicans of partial? You then also have to remember that Jamaicans of African descent do not just live in Jamaica, but we live in the United States and in Canada. And there's a joke that anywhere you go in the world, you will find a Jamaican. When when um, when there was that shooting at the masjid in New Zealand a couple of years ago in Churchill, Jamaicans were laughing about the fact that there was a Jamaican at the masjid. Not that not that there was a shooting, but the fact there's like, how did a Jamaican end up all the way in New Zealand, right? So that's one thing that I want to mention, right? But also when you take into account, right? And so I'm gonna I had to look it up so that I made sure I had my numbers correctly, right? But a hundred, I'm sorry. 12.5 million Africans were taken from Africa. 12.5 million, okay? 10.7 million arrived. 12.5 left, 10.7 arrived, right? Scientists today say that the migration patterns of some species of sharks follows the slave trade. Okay, there's also those who are more in tune with certain Afro spiritualisms that say the hurricanes follow that same path, right? Okay, I'm from the island of Jamaica, right? Where we Africans have been in Jamaica since Columbus showed up, right? We were enslaved since the days of Columbus, right? You have a group of people known as the Maroons, right? Who the British had to give them some sort of, of, had to sign a treaty. The British had to sit down with the Maroons to sign a treaty because the British could not keep fighting the Maroons, right? So in Jamaica, you have an autonomous region that is, that is governed by the Maroons. So then the question would then become, are the Maroons entitled to reparations? Which is why I believe reparations should go to each country and the country is able to take care of its people, fix up what needs to be fixed up. Kevercom has a whole 10-step reparations program that first and foremost starts off with an apology right? Jamaica, I, I want you to understand something. This year I turned 23, right? For 21 years of my life, I was told the indigenous Taino people of Jamaica were gone, as in get out, right? Only to come to find out that they exist. Now they exist in groups that are very much mixed with African and mixed with European, but they still exist. If you look in places like um, uh, Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, you'll find some more, 
And if you go to places like Guyana, there's definitely a lot more, right? Trinidad as well, right? Um, but I say this because also in CARICOM's reparations plan, there's scholarships for students who are of indigenous ancestry, right? To make up for the fact that the British came and wiped them out, right? Um, also talking about colonialism, right? So I, I exist in this space where I can talk about slavery and I can also talk about colonialism because Jamaica gained its independence in 1962, right? August, for August 8th, I'm lying, August 6th, we'll be celebrating our independence, right? All right, 1962, my mom was born in 1958, right? My aunts, all of my mom's sisters were born leading up to 1962. My mom's younger brothers were born after 1962, right? My nanny, right? 19, 1939. My grandfather, 1925, right? So they can tell me about when, when the king, Elizabeth's dad, used to run the show and when Elizabeth started to run the show, right? When we talk of what, what people don't understand, right? When we're talking about colonialism, when we're talking about reparations, when we're talking about these things, right? In Jamaica, to this day, you cannot get married after eight o'clock PM. You might say, oh, Jamil, it's probably for a safety reason. Maybe they don't want the bride and groom driving at night. There's a car accident. No, when slavery was abolished, against the begging of the church, because the church begged them not to, the British government sent over Indians. Right? The church said, oh, we just civilized the Negroes. These Indians are going to come with their heathenistic ways, their Islam, their Hinduism. They're going to corrupt our, 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 our well-behaved Negroes. Right? Indians used to have their marriage rights at night. So the, the, the illegality of, of marriages after 8 o'clock in Jamaica, in Trinidad, in Guyana, is because of Indian presence in the, in the countries. I want you to understand something. Um, let me see. The Wait, Hindu is that marriage in the present day? Present day. Present day. The Hindu Marriage Act and the Muslim Marriage Act of, I want to say, 19, maybe 1956, right? It's definitely, mm, definitely after my grandparents got married, right? So maybe 1960 something, right? But there's a Hindu Marriage Act and a Muslim Marriage Act, which means from 1845, when the first Indians were brought and they were practicing Hinduism and Islam, they legally could not be considered married until the 1900s, the late 1900s, right? And so when we're talking about how, how when we're talking about reparations, right? Because of that, even the Africans who adopted Hinduism and adopted Islam, right? Well, if I have my wife and we have a nikah, right? A Muslim marriage and I die, she's my wife. She's entitled to what I leave behind. No. She's my mistress. Our children, Jamil Jr. literally has my name. He's a bastard. So the, 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 the government comes and collects the house and collects the land. And now she needs to start over everything that I've been working for, but she's 80, what can she do? Up until, the, I want to say the late 60s, 70s, dark-skinned Jamaican women, dark-skinned Afro-Jamaican women could not work in the bank could not work in certain fields because of how they look. So when we're talking about reparations, right? It's not just, oh, reparations because slavery happened so long ago. Understand, Jamaica gave the world chocolate milk. Granted, it was a white man who, you know, tried to pass it off as a tonic 
and then he made it into chocolate milk, but it was the labor of Africans on, on cocoa plantations that gave him the cocoa. Rum, what the Caribbean is most known for, or one of the things that the Caribbean is most known for, rum, it is, is made from the same sugar cane that was making the sugar. And mind you, the, the Britain gained its wealth off of rum, off of sugar, off of coffee, off of and cocoa, cotton. and cotton. Mind you, none of these are things we need to survive. Really and truly, okay, you, the British were making their clothes out of, out of wool way before they were making their clothes out of cotton, so you don't need the cotton. Too much sugar gives you diabetes. Too much rum, cirrhosis and, and alcoholism, right? Cocoa, diabetes, coffee, mess up your nerves. None of the stuff that Britain gained, none of the stuff any of the European colonies gained their wealth off of was things that was necessary for survival, right? And maybe if it was, maybe I would entertain a conversation about, oh, you know, it was for the greater good of humanity, right? But when you're telling me that, you, there's a thing in Jamaica called the, der the, the Derby Dozen, right? No, a Derby Dozen was a thing created by a man named John, um, Thomas Thistlewood. Thomas Thistlewood, first of all, was not a, he was not originally a slave owner. This was a broke man who used to oversee on plantations for money and eventually gained the money to buy, pe to buy people, right? Now, I'm not going to say buy slaves, buy people. Now, mind you, if you know the story of Thomas Thistlewood, you know the story that Thomas Thistlewood was whipped. Right. And when I say whipped, I don't mean whipped by a whip. I mean, an enslaved woman by the name of Fibber had him under her thumb. Right. When you hear about the relations between enslaved African women and their white enslavers, it's a lot of white man overpowering black woman. Right. It's a lot of she could not say no. Understand that Thomas Thistlewood kept a journal. And every time, every time Fibber told him no, he would write about it. So today is the today is the 24th of, of July 2021 and Fibber rejected me. I saw Fibber talking to John from another plantation. I feel so sad. Right? She used to lend, he used to allow her to go and you know sell in the market and keep our money. He used to borrow money from her. Right? But I mention this because what we know a lot of slavery in Jamaica comes from Thomas Thistlewood, right? He would document who he assaulted if there was any children from the assault, but a lot of how FIBA made him feel, right? But the Derby Dozen was, when they had the enslaved people working in the fields and they were cutting down the sugarcane, right? You know, sugarcane is sweet. Sometimes the, 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 the enslaved person hasn't eaten all day, right? So sometimes they feel like they can pop a piece of sugarcane. If they were caught with the piece of sugarcane, one, the, 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 the overseer would have another enslaved person come, have them defecate, have, the per have the offender put the fecal matter in their mouth and then they would gag them for a little bit of time, right? You have whipping where they would rub pepper and salt and lime juice, right? And so I say these things because this type of generational trauma, this type of stuff, it, it, it continues. And not a lot of people want to give credit to generational trauma, right? But generational, generational trauma is one hell of a thing, right? And so when you look at, you know, just, the fact of the matter is this, right? I told you it was 10, what is it? 12.5 million people were left, right? 10.7 people arrived, right? There's a reason why places like Jamaica and Brazil were consistently, consistently having Africans shipped in, 
And that's because a life expectancy was not that long. When you talk about slavery in America, some things you can talk about is the fact you can talk about breeding farms, right? Where they just had plantations that were just set for breeding, right? And you can talk about the fact that they had um, some plantation owners did this thing where they said, oh, if you have 15, 16, 17, 20 children, I will give you your freedom. That type of stuff could never work in Jamaica, right? Because African women were so malnourished in Jamaica, if they had two children, they were lucky. If, 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 the, if the two children lived to adulthood, they were lucky. I was reading an article about it the other day and, I, and, and it was something I'd always wondered. I said, why we never have any breeding farms? Why, why, why owners never say, oh, have umpteen children and you get your freedom? Because they couldn't. And so when, we're, when we talk about this, right, there is, there is a lasting effect, right? There, and, and my issue with Jamaica now too is the fact, and a lot of the Caribbean is a lot of the Caribbean islands and countries are kind of these one trick ponies, right? At some point in history, Jamaica was the Pearl of the Antilles. Haiti was the Pearl of the Antilles. Trinidad was the Pearl of the Antilles because they were all putting out sugar, all putting out banana, all putting out coffee, right? Now, you, they, they, it, slavery is abolished, right? But now it's tourism, right? And so like, that's the one trick now is all the Caribbean islands are like falling into like they have to do tourism, right? And not a lot of people understand. That's why when you look at Caribbean people, if it seems like we're more open to people, you know, touching our culture is because if people don't touch with culture, we don't eat, right? My cousin does here, right? She doesn't have time to sit down and argue, oh, the white girl that come from Maryland getting her hair braided on the beach is cultural appropriating because if my cousin does not braid her hair, she can't buy groceries, right? And so that is the, so when I talk about, you know, like reparations, I think CARICOM has a beautiful reparations program right? It starts off with an apology. There's like um, infrastructure, there's um, academics, there's, in, there's, there's something sp specifically cut out for the indigenous people, because for a lot of the time, indigenous Caribbean people are not talked about, right? There's, um, I think if I remember correctly, there's even repatriation. And I know if, if anything, Rastafari, I definitely want to go back to Ethiopia, right? Some Jama there's, there's this belief that a lot of Jamaicans, well, not a belief, right? But like Jamaicans claim Ghana, Nigeria, um, Sierra Leone, and Liberia as their homelands, right? And so I think re reparations, people hear reparations, and I think nine times out of 10, they think is a monetary check. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't want the check. I want the money that, I, the same money that Jamaica made, and the British came and took and bettered Britain, I want them to take that same money, add on the interest, uh, you, you know, add on, add on what is, I don't want to say add on interest, right? But inflate it for what it's worth and send it back to the island. We have seven prime ministers in Jamaica's history. Only one was born post-1962. From 1962 to 2021, we've had seven prime ministers. Currently, Andrew Holness is the only one. Andrew Holness was born 10 years after independence. So that's all I have to say. Yeah, thank you so much, Jamil. And I think what we'll do is we'll just start off with closing statements because of time as well. So I'll just finish my, my own uh, closing piece. Um, I know that there are some people who are going to make the very, very sad argument, in my opinion. It's not an argument that holds water. But they'll be like, oh, well, we've given Africa $300 billion in aid. So that's reparations. No, it's not. 
And I can tell you that the reason why some African countries are where they are today is also because aid has significantly worsened those countries. And we've, we'll do a podcast on this, another podcast on this. I highly suggest that everyone reads the book Dead Aid by Dambisa Moyo. It absolutely, it shifts the narrative on aid because aid was, first of all, aid was used as a weapon at times. They used it, especially in this like ball game of you know, communism and capitalism, countries that tended to be more capitalist received more aid and countries that were more communist received less aid. For example, Mobutu's DRC, first of all, the Americans and the Belgians uh, did their own plan and plot to take out our friend Patrice Lumumba. And eventually Mobutu somehow got into power. And from there he was given money even though Mobutu was corrupt. Also additionally, right? If you look at aid, there's a study that's actually been done. And I, I forgive me, I don't actually have the citation for it, but I'll strive to get it for you guys. Uh, but I've mentioned it in my other podcast as well, so you can go ahead and have a look. But there's a study that was done that found that nations actually don't really care. Like there's no, I mean, there's a positive correlation. Like if a country is corrupt, they're not getting less money actually, which should be a red, it's a red flag. Like why are you giving like corrupt leaders that money? Like why? And you think that that money is honestly going to go to the people? Like aid is one of the biggest international relations failures of the last 100 years. Not only that, if you want to talk about the IMF, right? And what the IMF has done to Africa and the World Bank and what they have done to Africa, it's nothing but predatory neocolonialism, in my opinion. Whether it's good intentions or not, that is the reality of the fact. When you tell a country to devalue its currency, what are you doing? You're making that currency, obviously, it's going to have less value, but that's inflation, basically. The merchants are going to raise up their prices. They'll be fine. But the people who are buying from the shops, they're going to be paid fixed salaries. And what does that mean? They're going to have less money in their pocket. And then here's the kicker. And here's the actual, like, when you look at this dynamic, there's no way that you cannot connect this with the colonial period, Right. If your currency is going to be devalued, obviously, the way you produce goods is going to be radically different. And you're going to sometimes actually want to export more of your natural resources. And in all likelihood, it's actually to your colony, your former colony, right? Because you want to get more income to pay back those loans. What kind of a system is that? And how is it fundamentally different from the colonial enterprise? That is the nature of neocolonialism. So if you want to have a conversation about aid, guys, I seriously recommend that you look into that research. And I'll finish off with this. <coughs> that issue of you know, loans, countries not being able to produce as much or countries not being able to industrialize, that problem was inherited by colonialism. When you tell us about the pros and quotes of colonialism that you left us with railways, where were these railways going to? They were going from the coasts until the capital cities, right? Or they were going to key resource areas. That's exactly what was happening. But do you know that the infrastructure gap, like in Africa, is so large. Some people don't even think that if, for example, we're able to get a, like billion dollar loans yearly, they don't think that we'd be able to like merge that gap, right? And not only that, intra-African trade, and this is from a UN, uh, I think it's a United Nations, yeah, UNCTAD, I think they, they did another survey on this to check the trade between African countries. It was as low as 2%, while as in Europe, it was literally 64% plus. 
like you can clearly see that there's issues, right? And these are structural issues. And that's what I want people to get. We're not talking about people getting money and then putting it so they can spend it on themselves. No, we want a fair international economy. And we know that the US doesn't like it. We know that the UK doesn't like it. We know that France doesn't like it. We know that the global North does not want that order to actually come into play. Why? One, they're going to lose a lot of money. Two, if Africa gets control of its resources, especially the DRC, imagine the DRC being able to grasp $1 trillion worth of wealth. The DRC will become a superpower overnight. Without sort of wealth, no wonder the DRC is the way it is today. No wonder, because these companies, these conglomerates, they benefit from destabilization of African countries, specifically the DRC. So for me, we have to have a, we have to go back to the works of people like Raul Prebish, who was, I believe was from Peru. He wrote an article about this and he talked about how the economic inequality actually worsens like in a post-colonial state where you don't have any structural change afterwards. We need to look at the works of people who are part of that third world project. And we need to look at what they were actually saying because they also knew what was going on. And if you want the worst kicker, right? If you want to look at the difference, right, between or like in wealth and, you know, all these different things back then compared to now, it's even worse. So if there's a need for reparations, and I remember I'm going to just finish off by describing a conversation with, that I had with someone. Someone said, why should I have to pay for the sins of my ancestors? My question to you is why should you benefit because of the sins of your ancestors and I should suffer for the sins of your ancestors? Why? Right? And by me, I'm not talking about me as an Adnan Shafi, right? I'm talking as an African. And each African has their own unique experience, but each one of us has been impacted by those exact colonial um, you know, reforms and policies. That's exactly what's happened. So for anyone that wants to have that conversation, by all means, we're glad to have it. Tracy, let's hear from you, your final, uh, final closing statements and the same thing for Miles after her. Um, I think I'm going to end mine on when you're talking about why reparations should be a thing is um, a personal family story would be, I would say about the being 2021. So I would say in 2014, we had this big reunion of family um, reunion come together for my grand from my grandfather's side because they're 10 brothers all of them different ages. And as I said, the eldest was one of the Mau Mai fighters and he has his wife as well as his sister under him who was also a fighter. So in 2014, we had a big reunion and it was because uh, my grandfather's brother was able to meet his son. And this was his son who he had when he was on the plantations, those sides of I think it was Kitui, very far from where I'm from, because I'm from central Kenya. So that was in Eastern, like Eastern, Southern Kenya, where he was taken to a plantation where he worked for the British. And he had created, met this woman, they'd had a family, they were married. But upon the time he, he, he left, he was leaving to join the Mau Mau because he had had enough of working for these people, not being paid. It was, it was still slavery. Colonization was honestly still slavery. Let's just be honest about it. And 
being so far away from his people and hearing his friends, his tribe, especially like the Kukuyu tribe leading the charge against colonization. And his wife was very scared and she didn't want to go with a young child to go and start living in caves, which is essentially what the Mau Mau did. They lived in caves, they lived in forests while they were fighting the British and she didn't know if they would survive. So they were separated. And that was, I would say in 1953. And since 1953, he left his two-year-old son. And in 2013, 2013-2014, he finally met his firstborn child. And it was the biggest celebration we had. And he had this was a grown man with his own grown children, children older than me, obviously, because he was a firstborn and he was in his late 50s by that point, I think. And Oh, actually 60s, yeah. So it was such a joyous reunion, but also it reminded our family of really what colonization took from us. The, the bonds, the family, the people who we lost, the people who were left behind, the people who never have that reunion, the families, oh, we were paid, he was paid, let's say 300,000, but of the two of the 150,000 Mau Mau fighters, only 5,200 something were paid reparations, which really wasn't reparations. They had to go and de not really demean, like be dehumanized as they described in detail the injuries, the torture. Remember that the British created a special type of pliers that could twist testicles off of Kenyan men. And these are men who are still alive today like some who are alive, some who are, who are not. But the fact that till today in Kenya, families have these stories and the fact that till today, we still have a lot of issues with tribalism. That's why did we end up having the post-election violence in Kenya if it wasn't Kikuyu against Luo, which was honestly brought about by colonization by trying to make Kikuyu's better than Luo's because Kikuyu's fought while the Luo's did nothing. It was just propaganda. And this was fueled because the main person who fueled the post-election violence was not even on the list of people who was taken to The Hague. Because what? He was protected by the same British people who colonized us. So when I really do agree with Jamil about what reparations should be about, and it's so essential. It has to be from the root. It has to be an honest apology. They need to give back the land that they still hold under conservation or under a British treaty when they create documentaries about how the KDF is helping the British forces in, in training in Kenya and how amazing a friendship it is to cover up the fact that their soldiers come to our country, rape our women, pillage our wildlife, which is essentially one of the few things we still have as our pride, and just use PR to kind of let it go. And it's the sins of your ancestors. No, it's not. The fact that Queen Elizabeth found out she was Queen Elizabeth in Kenya should be more than enough evidence that they need to pay for any and everything that they have still done and the fact that they still own us. So reparations also should be getting out of the Commonwealth 
because it really does not benefit any of us. We go for these games and we play kumbaya and it's all nice and dandy. But what really does it do except say that the queen is still the head of state? Look at Barbados recently removing her as head of state and people seeing it as such a big thing. But it's really not. It's us coming into our own autonomy. So reparations is just the next step. And it's overhauling our education, giving back. And the fact that we have so much of the of everything in terms of coffee, tea, all of these things that we didn't have to or needed to survive, but are our largest export to them. And how we manage our GDP. And literally our GDP's highest grossing things are tourism or agriculture. Both of them are byproducts of colonization and slavery. So there's not really much of an argument for anyone who thinks, oh, the sins of my ancestor, I'm not benefiting, you're still benefiting to this day from Africa. So whatever you're getting now, it needs to come back with inflation. Yeah, go ahead, Miles. Okay, yeah. Um, so you have to leave in a few minutes, but I just wanted to say I 100% agree 100%. Although I do want to say that I think the difference between maybe Algeria and our experiences, maybe that of the experiences of countries in Western Africa and in the Caribbean, like Jamaica, for example, is that at least in my opinion, and I think probably the opinions of people like my grandfather who fought in the resistance, and some of my uncles and cousins would agree, that in Algeria, we don't only want reparations, we want acknowledgements and we want apologies. Uh, what makes Algeria so different from every other country is that 60, almost 60 years, not six years just yet, in two years it will be 60 years, uh, but almost 60 years later, we still haven't received concrete confessions from France uh, that states that sanctions uh, torture in French military prisons was sanctioned by the highest levels of the government that military leaders were given permission by the president to use any means possible to get information from resistance fighters, uh, that the French army was given direct orders to clear out villages with rebels in them at any cost, even if that involved killing men, women, and children, which happened multiple, multiple times, uh, that France mysteriously disappeared thousands and thousands of not only Algerian journalists who are exposing these war crimes, but even French journalists, because there were many people in France who were absolutely horrified once they found out what the French government was doing. And I think the other big issue with the war is that, believe it or not, most people in mainland France actually had no idea what was happening in Algeria until the last few years of the war, because the government worked so hard to silence anyone who tried to expose what was happening. And so once it came to 1960, 1961, and people started hearing about all of these allegations of torture, people said, you know, what the hell is our government actually doing in Algeria in the first place? We don't want any more of this. So I do like to always point out that there were many French people who were horrified by the crimes. Not all of them were willing accomplices of what the French government was doing. Um, and so, you know, all of these things, you know, we don't only want reparations, we want acknowledgements. And just a few months ago, Emmanuel Macron said there will be no apologies for what the French government did in Algeria. Openly said it himself, we will, and I quote, we will not apologize. So at this point, it's not even 
okay, maybe they're just trying to avoid it. It's him blatantly saying, we're not going to apologize for a single thing because we basically have no regrets for what we did. And so that that made all of our, especially us Algerians here in France, uh, that made our blood boil beyond proportion. But I mean, they don't even attempt to make it hidden that they never actually intend to apologize. And that is the biggest issue. There are people who are still alive today who can tell you the effects of this. My grandfather is still alive today. He can tell you about the electric rods they used on him in these military prisons. Uh, when my dad was born in 1960, Algeria didn't even exist yet. It's why he has French citizenship. Uh, people like my uncle can tell you he served in the army. Uh, people like my grandmother who helped assemble guns for independence fighters during the War of Independence. I have family members who are alive today who can tell you these things crystal clearly. They can even show you pictures of their lives in Algeria with the French flag flying in the background. So these things were not long ago. And for many of us Algerians, it's still crystal clear. Our parents know these experiences. Our grandparents know these experiences. Uh, I even have um, some people around me whose grandparents, white French people, whose grandparents were Piedmois and whose grandparents were born in Algeria. And sometimes they say things like, you know, oh, I wish I could go back to Algeria and et cetera. And I, my blood kind of boils when I hear those sorts of statements. I mean, I don't blame the children, of course, because children are children, children are innocent. Uh, but to make those statements when your parents refuse, when your grandparents refuse to acknowledge the fact that they weren't entitled to be there in the first place uh, is what really makes some of us just so beyond angry. So, you know, I don't only want reparations. I don't just want throwing the bills around. I want acknowledgements for people like my grandfather that he was in a military camp, an illegal military camp that he was tortured illegally in violation of international law and that no one did anything to stop that from happening. We want people to acknowledge that there were thousands and thousands of men, women, and children who didn't just disappear, they were killed, they were intentionally taken out so that they wouldn't be able to expose what the government was doing. So, you know, I don't just want financial compensation or here's a money, here's a paycheck for what your grandfather suffered. I want not a military leader, not a mayor, not a governor. I want the president himself to say, we committed war crimes in Algeria. We had military camps that were illegal. We had leaders who ordered their soldiers to massacre entire villages of men, women, and children. That is what I want most importantly. Reparations, definitely 100%. Uh, but people like my family who are directly affected by it, we don't only want those reparations. We want confessions and we want acknowledgments. And I will give a little bit of credit to Macron in saying that he has been a little bit more open than past French presidents have. Like he did acknowledge the fact that a very famous French soldier was actually killed, even though France at the time said that he committed suicide, or the fact that Emmanuel Macron did mention that there were some grave human rights violations that were done. But the fact that he refuses to openly say, we committed crimes and we're sorry, is what continues to boil the blood of all of us 60 years later. Because we know you did it, you know you did it. Many people who are still alive in France today, soldiers, army leaders, know they did it, but they are absolutely refusing to even acknowledge that. And if we're just going to add one more thing on top of that, actually, what is the most interesting is that France refused to call what happened in Algeria a war until the 1990s. Because in the eyes of the French government, Algeria was a part of France. It was a province. We weren't even considered a colony, actually. We were considered a part of France. And so admitting that what happened in Algeria was a war 
meant admitting that Algeria wasn't actually France in the first place. So if you read, the, you can find a French textbook, I've actually seen this myself, from the 1970s and 1980s. It doesn't say what happened in Algeria was a war or even a civil war. It says that there was mass disturbance in Algeria, in French Algeria. They didn't even use the word war until the 1990s. Uh, and so all of these things, you know, it's just, we don't only want reparations, we want apologies, we want confessions, and we want acknowledgements. That is what will generally heal, or at least play a part in healing, a lot of the generational trauma that people like me still have. I wasn't in the camps myself, but when I see this, the marks that my grandfather can show me, when I hear the stories that he can tell me, when I even see the pictures that he can show me, I'm like, oh my God, this was not that long ago. My dad was alive when this happened. My grandfather, who's still alive today, was actually directly affected by it. These were not things that happened 200 years ago. They happened in the last century and there are many people alive today who can tell you about these things 100%. So that's all I wanted to say about that. But again, you know, in the case of Algeria, I think it might be very unique in comparison to maybe Kenya or Jamaica. We don't just want reparations, we want acknowledgement, something which the president has said he will not do. So it will be a very long struggle until hopefully one day we can get to a stage where that does happen but I truthfully do not see that happening in my grandfather's lifetime and he's already 95 years old. So I don't see it happening anytime soon, but I think it would be justice if that were to happen anytime soon. Yeah, um, I'll just add my own, uh, you know, just comments on what you said and then I'll close off the podcast. Uh, but yeah, people think that, you know, uh, somehow we don't understand or like, you know, we can't relate, but I've tried talking to my own grandmother and I actually think that the reason why my grandmother doesn't talk about her time during colonialism a lot is because of embedded trauma. Some people suppress what they're actually experiencing, right? And they don't want to talk about it. Or they say, I don't know, right? Maybe because they forgot because of the trauma or maybe because they don't want to just go back and revisit that trauma. But I've had conversations with her sister and she used to uh, tell me that they used to live next to a prison actually. And they would hear people getting tortured. Now imagine you still have to remember those sounds, right? So when people tell me that, oh, this was a long time, you know, why should I? You're sitting comfortably in your European or American chairs at home, right? Sitting comfortably in your privilege, right? While you don't understand that our grandparents and our ancestors, our parents even, for some of us, right, were pulled into something that they didn't want to ever be a part of. And you expect us to be proud of being part of the British empire, to respect the British empire, to respect the way American leaders erect statues of these people, these monsters, if we're going to come out and say it, <clears throat> right? If you look at the atrocities that happened in Belgium, in the Congo, right? Sorry, in the, in the Congo, yeah, that happened, especially due to the uh, you know, Belgians going in there. You're telling me that you want a statue of that person to be erected because for me a statue is very different to telling the history books about it that person could very well have done good things but that does not erase their bad deeds you guys like if people want to, to, uh, to teach history selectively then stay out of academia we don't want academia to be colonized anymore and if anything we have to start the process of taking back that academia because for me it's too much it's actually too much i don't know how you expect us to put up with that like, it's not fair. It's genuinely not fair. Even what they did to the Windrush generation in the UK, it's not fair, right? So it's all about growing up and taking responsibility 
for something that was and is generational. It benefited generational uh, certain generations and it underprivileged other generations to the modern day. Thank you guys so much once again. Uh, this was a really, really heartfelt podcast, uh, but I, I think it's one of the best, best ones that we've done. We can even possibly do a part two at some point in the future, but I want to thank everyone who's listening again. And please, please, please do actually read about this. And it's all about Africans and people in the global South simply just wanting to reclaim what used to be theirs and the rights that they have, not to wealth specifically, but a fair chance at development. And by development, we, we don't mean, oh, becoming a wealthy country. We mean providing for people and prioritizing so that we're not sending people to space when people on the ground are starving. Thank you guys so much once again. This is Pariah Nation, and I will see you in the next episode.